So I thought for today, let's open your Bibles actually, and we'll just briefly go to the beginning of Mark, and I just want to sort of recap these first six chapters to put today's into context, and also just to refresh our memories of all that's been going on uh, in Mark up until now. So you remember how fast-paced this is, right? Chapter 1, beginning of the Gospel, John the Baptist appears. He baptizes, and he baptizes Jesus, and after Jesus is baptized, he is off to the races, so to speak. His ministry starts in earnest, and it's very, very rapid. Verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized. Immediately, the heavens opened up, and then immediately, the Spirit impels him to go into the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness. Um, John is taken into custody. Jesus, in verse 16 calls his first disciples, Peter and Andrew, follow me. Going on a little further, he calls the other, some other disciples. They end up into Capernaum. He goes immediately into the synagogue and starts teaching. They're amazed at his teaching. And right off the bat, uh, this, this guy possessed with a demon cries out. Um, this is significant, verse 24. What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth. So identifies him as Jesus from Nazareth, right from the shoot. First... Uh, encounter, the first situation we see Jesus um, encountering in the synagogue is casting out this devil from this fellow who recognizes him as Jesus of Nazareth. He rebukes him, he casts him out. Immediately, verse 28, the news spreads everywhere throughout Galilee. Immediately, verse 29, they go to Simon Andrew's mother's house. She's sick, he heals her. And then after that, he heals many people. They keep bringing hundreds of people probably to him. It's a very long day. Verse 40, then a leper comes to Jesus. Jesus heals him of his leprosy. And we're not even done with chapter 1 yet, right? So remember how, how active this is a suffering servant. He's going, going, going already. Not even before chapter 2, he seems very tired out, I would imagine. Very active work. Okay, chapter 2. This is a really remarkable scene where the paralytic is lowered down through a hole in the roof which they dug, and he heals him. Furthermore, he tells him his sins are forgiven. Throughout here, I haven't read them, but you, there are, it's punctuated with uh, descriptions of the leaders questioning him. Why did you do that in the Sabbath? Why, aren't they, why are they not washing their hands properly? So the, the leaders are just so skeptical of everything Jesus is doing throughout uh, his early ministry, well, throughout his whole ministry. Okay, he travels to the seashore. He calls Matthew. Um, I'm going through chapter 2 now. He goes to the grain fields, the disciples eat the wheat heads and they get criticized. And then in chapter 3, he enters the synagogue again. Man with a withered hand, he heals him. He then withdraws again to the sea with his disciples. This great multitude continues to follow him. This is where he goes out into the boat and it seems like he had an amphitheater, probably a natural amphitheater. He's out in the boat and he had to go out in the boat because there's so many people there just pushing, pushing around him. He had to go out there so that he'd have room really to speak and to preach and to teach.
It's just so interesting, right? It's hard for us to imagine. So back to Mark. Well, let's pick up at verse 1 of chapter 6. His disciples are following in him into Nazareth. And having read Luke and that reaction that the people had to him, and we'll see here somewhat similar reaction, it just made me think, you know, what was it like in Jesus' hometown for him growing up? What, what was he like? You know, I, I just started to imagine, what was he like? Was he, you know, like when he made something out of wood, did it, was it like perfect all the time? You know what I mean? And like standing down just gleaming perfect. You know, what was he really like? It's, it's hard to put my mind around it. But I want to, if you'll humor me, I want to just go through some of the scripture. And I think there's obviously mystery there. We, we don't really don't know. But I, I, I think there's some things we can learn if, if we look at it. And you guys may have done this before, um, but I hadn't. So a couple things we know about Jesus in his early life. Obviously, we know the, the story in Luke and Matthew, right? He was born in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2 tells us that he was born there. Matthew chapter 2 also. Um, let's flip, though, to Luke chapter 2. And I just want to pull out some details. I hope I'm not taking too much liberty with this, but I, I think it might help us understand the reaction if we just consider some facts about his upbringing or the situation surrounding his birth. So, Luke chapter 2. Um, well, verse 1, this is in those, I'm sorry, let's, let's not do that first. Keep your thumb there. Go to Matthew chapter 2. Sorry about this. Um, Hold on a second. I'm going to get my thoughts lined up here. Okay. All right. All I want to emphasize at this point, I've got a whole system of how I'm going to present this to you. So basically, Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2, you read basically he was born in... Bethlehem of Judea. And we know the situation around that because they had to register for the census and Joseph was going to go to Bethlehem and um, register them and that is where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem. Okay. You'll read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. As when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So they go to Bethlehem, but they don't immediately come back to Nazareth. That is where they're from, because that's where it says in Luke that they sent an angel to Nazareth to speak to Mary. So they go from Nazareth, they go to Bethlehem, and from Bethlehem an angel appears and says, go to Egypt for a while. We don't know how long he was there, but we do know that Herod died about 4 B.C., and depending on how the dating goes exactly of 0 A.D. being the time Jesus was actually born, uh, Jesus may have been born about the year 2 A.D. So don't want to get too technical, but um, Herod died in the year 4, not 4 B.C., he died in the year 4. So Herod died, Herod the Great died when Jesus was 2 years old. So probably they're in Egypt for, don't know how long, but maybe 2 years before they make their way back to Nazareth. Just keep that in mind. Um, and that is when Herod killed all the babies in Nazareth, okay? Or in, in Bethlehem, I should say. At that time, Bethlehem was a small town. So we don't know how many babies Herod killed. It's not easy to find other historical evidence of it, but he may not have killed that many. If there were a thousand people in Bethlehem, I think Bethlehem was a small town. So there may have only been about a thousand residents and someone has done the math and said, well, he may have killed 15 or 20 babies. So it may not have made the history books with something so quote unquote small. But the point is, according to the Bible, uh, Herod did that. Jesus was in Egypt and they, they brought him back after that. 
Uh, what else do we know about Jesus' early life? Well, in, um, in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it mentions that the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Right? That's after they returned uh, to Nazareth from Jesus' birth. And we also know about Jesus. He must have had some level of independence at the age of 12 because they're returning from Jerusalem in a caravan and a day goes by and they're like, oh, where's Jesus? All right, so they must have been used to him being somewhat independent and not have to watch him every second. My brother has young kids and, I mean, one of them wouldn't go missing for a day, right? But back in that time, he, he must have had some autonomy and independence at a young age to where they could go for a whole day in a caravan and not really worry about him. But after about a day, they look for him and they say, where is Jesus? And they realize he's not with them. They have to go back. And where do they find him? In the temple, uh, learning and actually speaking. So that's another thing we know about him, sort of a precocious young man. But I think in that time, 12-year-old was getting up there to where you had a lot of responsibilities, more than I think we expect people today. And it seems like he was content just sitting there for three days in the synagogue, learning, it says, and teaching. And it says, even back then, those who heard him were amazed. Let's actually look at that because it's an interesting verse. Then it's chapter 2 of Luke, verse 46. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Okay, so there's another snippet of information we know about Jesus in his young life. And then, like I mentioned before, Luke also mentions he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Okay, so keep that in mind, and we're going to revisit that in a minute when we get to the reaction of the uh, townspeople to his teaching. Okay, I'm back in Mark, chapter 6, verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in a synagogue. So this is the last time you'll see Jesus teaching in a synagogue in Mark. That's a significant event. Up until now, we've seen him several times going into town, going to synagogue to teach. But this is the last time we'll see that in Mark. And in Nazareth, well, it was customary for a traveling rabbi, if he visited a town, that he'd go to the synagogue and he'd be the first allowed to speak. You see here that they didn't really recognize him as a rabbi, but apparently they gave him that privilege. And, I, and even at that time, all adult men could speak in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So they give Jesus the ability there to speak in the synagogue. And this was his pattern. We've seen it before. He visits a town, goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and preaches. In Mark, actually in all the Gospels, the synagogue is a symbol of rejection. Every time he goes there, the leaders reject him. The Jewish people over and over, especially the leaders, constantly rejecting Jesus. And this is a symbol especially important here in Mark because of what we see happens afterwards. So um, just know that uh, it is a symbol of rejecting, rejection. And in Mark's story, Nazareth becomes a symbol of rejection, right? So I mention these because if you remember the context where we're going next teaching, where Jesus is going to send the disciples out, this is like he's showing them, okay, look it. I'm being rejected from the synagogue. I'm being rejected by my own people. You are going to encounter these same problems. And when you read Matthew chapter 10, the whole chapter is dedicated to Jesus really in detail explaining what's going to happen to his apostles when he sends them forth. So this is more training for the apostles, okay, for them to see Jesus being rejected in Nazareth and in the, temp the, um, the synagogue. Okay, continuing on verse 2, it says, And the many listeners were astonished, so they were amazed. That's what the word means. They were just amazed at his teaching. But it's not really the amazement that you think. They're amazed because they recognize it is with power and authority. It said that earlier in the book. They, they can see something. I mean, he's got authority to speak the truth. They're amazed at it. But they're not amazed in a way that's like, wonderful. Teach me more. I, I'm so amazed in a way that's positive and good, and I want to embrace it. It's actually the opposite. They're amazed, and they're extremely offended. Um, they're, and they say, where did this man get these things? And the, it's all passive verbs here. So they're acknowledging that he's changed. Where did he get these? How did he receive 
this wisdom. They, of course, knew about his miracles. Remember, because we read earlier in this book and either earlier in Luke that uh, they knew about the miracles he was doing. His family was summoned to save him from his radical teaching and his miracles. So probably everyone in the town of Nazareth knew about the great miracles, and they knew about his great teaching. And yet, this is a um, picture of unbelief. They have a dilemma, don't they? They have miracles and teaching and amazing. And on the other hand, they have unbelief. So it's, it's like they can't see it. They cannot grasp it. They have to come to some other conclusion to stick where they are in their unbelief. But Yes, so it's, it's important to remember because we'll, we'll come around to this concept in a few minutes, but when you consider what is the purpose of a miracle, okay, and it reinforces what we said over and over again, miracle doesn't save anybody. I mean, it is a display of God's power. It's a display of mercy. It is sometimes given as a demonstration of someone's faith, but many people can see miracles and it doesn't give them any faith. Jesus healed a lot of people that didn't even ask for healing. He just heals them. The guy at the pool in Bethsaida, I think, and the, there's people he's walked up and heals. They don't, even, they don't even have faith. And then there's another example. It's in Luke where he heals 10 lepers. And they all come to him and he heals them. And he sends them out and only one comes back and acknowledges, you know, thank you, thank you, and ha seems to have faith in Jesus. The other one just sort of go their way. So um, miracles don't cause faith. And, and people can see miracles and have no faith, and um, that's just a fact. And, and these people here heard of the miracles, they saw the teaching, and they're not going to have any faith. When his own family heard of his miracles, they said, he's lost his senses, right? Even at that time. So they didn't have eyes to see. Fortunately, by God's mercy, it seems for sure like his brother's were saved. Don't know about his sister. There's no comment on that. But we know James was saved. He wrote James, and Jude was saved. He wrote the book of Jude, um, and Mary, of course, was a believer. But we don't know about his sister. So um, miracles don't save people. And earlier on in John, actually chapter seven, it says, "For not even his brothers were believing in him." So there's a point in Jesus's ministry where they saw his miracles and didn't believe in him yet, until God quickened them through the Spirit believe. Okay, so they're asking about his wisdom and his miracles. How did he get these? And implied here is they're sort of saying, well, we know it can't be from God. And we know it's not from God because he's just a carpenter. And he just is Jesus, right? That's sort of implied in this. Where did he get these things? When obviously the answer for a Jew might be God. God Almighty gave him these powers. I mean, no one's ever done this before. Don't you remember the prophets and what John the Baptist said about him? And, you know, they would, you think they would go there, but they don't. They're just implying that, that he's not from God. He's from something else. Because in chapter, or verse 3, it says, and this, this is very important. Okay, just look at what they say. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and a brother, and list of siblings? And are not his sisters with us? So, this is significant. They call him a carpenter. So a carpenter, um, well, essentially, uh, back then, that was a humble job. It was real humble. It was menial labor. Uh, it wasn't considered very significant or important. It was really humble. Menial labor is what they would consider a carpenter. Um, just a side note, it seems like he may not have just been a woodworker because that word carpenter in the Greek is tekton, and it's like what we get architect from and today. Architect, it really could be translated um, a chief builder or a builder with hard things or like a stonemason. Okay, so he may not have just been working in wood, just as a side note. He may have had skills in other areas like a stonemason. Back then when they did build houses, mostly it was out of stone, some wood. But I always have in my mind him being a carpenter. Part of the reason, you know, with wood, standing wood all the time. But um, may, maybe not. His trade was more developed than that. I know there's historical evidence with Josephus, I believe, who said that Jesus 
was a maker of plows and yokes. So he, maybe he, he made woodworking for the farms. Point is, uh, he was a worker with his hands, and it was not a very noble job. It was humble. And they don't say the son of a carpenter. Matthew says this is a son of a carpenter, but here they just call him a carpenter. And here they call him the son of Mary. So that's interesting too. Does anyone know the significance of that? Why do they not call him the son of Joseph? Yeah. Illegitimate. That's their implication. He's illegitimate. He doesn't have a father. Which is going to lead me to look at some other verses. Really flesh this out. Um, yes, so it, in that culture, you were the son of your father. Even if your father died, you were the son of your father. So they should have said son of Joseph. And in that day, they would say son of the mother if you were illegitimate. If they didn't know who your father was. And so... This is their jab at Jesus. They're saying he's this illegitimate child. Who is he? This carpenter, this illegitimate child to be here preaching like this. So they're jealous, seems like. They're bitter, and they're harsh. Very harsh. Um, so that implies there must have been rumors, right? And it implies his whole life there were rumors that he wasn't born of Joseph, or he really wasn't. Joseph wasn't his father. So I, I just wanted to actually look at a few of the verses to help put us in the, um, uh, I guess just put us in the mind of the people and what was happening at that time and what would be actually a real logical conclusion. When you look at Luke chapter 1, when Mary is visited by the angel, verse 26, it says, now in the sixth month, and this is the sixth month of uh, Elizabeth is Elizabeth's pregnancy, right? So the angel visits Elizabeth first and says, you're with child, John the Baptist. And then when he says here, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. This is when um, Gabriel visits Mary. And if you just sort of peruse there, he, he visits her and tells of Jesus' birth, speaks to Mary about his birth, how it's going to come about. In verse 39 of chapter 1 of Luke, now at this time Mary arose, went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah. So she's going to go visit Elizabeth and basically tell her what's happened. You know, this angel spoke to me, I'm pregnant. And um, of course, Elizabeth's belly leaps with John, leaps for joy. And then she has the Magnificat, which she says to exalting the Lord. It's like a prayer. And then if you look at verse uh, 56, and Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So what I'm getting at is she finds out she's pregnant. I don't know how long, far along she was when she became impregnated, right? We don't, but I assume early on. So she comes back from this trip at least three months later. Don't know if she's quite showing yet, right? But the point is, what would the town have thought? It's not a very big town. She disappears for three months and she comes back. She's not married yet. So that's probably when the rumors started, right? It only makes sense. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. So there you go. Everyone also knows that they're going to register. She's really pregnant now and they're still not married. They're betrothed. And then you also can read in Matthew chapter 1. You don't have to flip there. Um, it's verse 18, I believe. Joseph, basically 18 through 25 of Matthew 1. Joseph hears out about this and he plans to send Mary away. But this angel appears to Joseph and says, don't do that. She's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. So his initial reaction was the same as the townspeople's reaction. So basically what I'm saying is obviously the people in the town would have seen and known that she got pregnant before she was married. She disappears for three months and comes back. And it's a small town and everyone knew it. So I think, I never thought of this before, but his whole life growing up, there must have been that rumor. Right? That Jesus is the illegitimate child. And I think that's bore out here in the text. And the other area where that's bore out is if you look at John chapter 8. 
Sorry to have you flip around so much, but it, um, John chapter 8, verse 41. And this chapter, you remember, ends with them. Basically, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, um, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So this is a whole chapter where Jesus is really confronting the hypocritical Jewish leadership about who their father really is, how they want to kill him, and they think they're godly, but he's God, and he's basically telling them, you are hypocrites, you're, you're complete hypocrites. And in verse 41 of that chapter, well, back up to verse 40, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. And then they say to him, verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your father. Oh, I'm sorry, he says, Jesus says, you're doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So that interpretation could mean they, these people know of this rumor. And they're saying to Jesus, we weren't born like you were, illegitimate. We have one father, God. That's one way that you can interpret that. And several of the commentators I've read said that that's probably what they were referring to. We, we were the rumor that they had heard about Jesus' um, illegitimate birth. Well, I go through all that to say I think it's possible that uh, in their sin, his family or his um, community, even though they could see these miracles, they, they clung to this fact that you had this odd kid that seemed like he was um, maybe illegitimate. Doesn't seem like he was out preaching all the time as a young kid because then they would not have been so surprised when he shows up knowing the word. They said, he's a carpenter. How did he? So they have no idea how he learned um, God's word. And I think this just gives flavor to why they took offense at him. They cannot conceive of God doing a work in someone like him. They, just can't. they, they can only conceive of God doing a work in someone like them. You know, they're, the, they're the leaders. Any thoughts on that? Go ahead. Right. Yeah. I have a thought on it. No, I haven't read anything because I was actually looking for something like that because I've sort of feel like I've come to my own conclusions here and just yeah. piecing this together. But imagine if she did. I bet you she did. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit made me pregnant. Yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. So they may have thought, you know, not just was. She's crazy. Mary's crazy to say this stuff. And Joseph's crazy. Just, we know what's going on here. They're just made up this fancy story. So that, I think it's possible. Either way, they just may have kept it themselves. Or I think probably they did at first try to start telling people and got the looks of, really? Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know, but... um. I'm pretty confident based on this study that really Jesus did grow up a humble carpenter and with a little bit of rumor from all his townspeople that he was the illegitimate oldest son. That, that's my conclusion. And, um, I think it fits the way God works, right? Take, I mean, he's lowly enough being you know, born in a manger and... Um, the humble circumstances surrounding it, the humble family he came from, Mary was unwed, etc. And then even more to have him, you know, the stone that the builders rejected even started early on in his life. I, I, I think it's a fitting image. Yeah. Would it not? Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah, so it's unbelief unmasked, right? So they, um, with our, we're Christians, so we, we can appreciate God. He's given light to our eyes, right? Why wouldn't they say, wow, look at this sort of outcast kid that has grown up like this, and now he's doing all these miracles. Why wouldn't you conclude and rejoice and say, look at how good God is. He's blessed this, and this really is a work of the Lord, rather than come the other conclusion they came to. Legalism, I think, and unbelief. They can't see. Right. Yep. Right. That's right. And in fact, Right, just like he's showing the disciples. This is sort of the main lesson he's showing his disciples is, look, it, I'm rejected in the synagogue, I'm rejected by my own people. In two verses, I'm going to send you out, and you're going to be rejected too, but you, you do it because you're called to do it, and the Holy Spirit compels us to do it. When did Joseph marry Mary? Marry Mary? I don't know. <laughs> Shortly after, I don't know. Good question, Judy. I, I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> but I, I want to point out something because it's, it's interesting. If you look at actually um, the end of verse 3, when it says they took offense at him, this is really interesting uh, because that word offense um, means like... Uh, they, scan, they were offended. It's like it was a scandal that he would do this. It, it was just not right. It was so off that they would do this. And the Greek word is like scandalize. I don't know the exact pronunciation of it, but it's like scandalize. It's a verb form of the word scandal. So scandalon is a noun, okay, which is made into a verb here. They scandalized him. Stay with me. So the, the word scandalon, the noun, is a Greek noun that describes a stone that's rejected. Okay? It's so interesting the way God used this real word. So um, it would be like a, a carpenter or a stone worker working on stones, and one of these stones just isn't right, and they have to reject it and use a different one. So that's the noun. Scandalon means a stone that's rejected. So Psalm 118.22, stone which the builders rejected, became the chief cornerstone, right? I don't want to make too much out of it, but I, I think it's relevant. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, don't have to go there, I'll just read it for you. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It says, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So just the image of Jesus, even as a young boy, starting this rejection, right? Precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. That's Isaiah 28. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So the Nazarites aren't getting this, right? They're not going to believe in this choice cornerstone. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, like this word scandalon, right? It's the same concept. This became the very cornerstone and, quote, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And this rock of offense is the same word scandalon. So Peter is, in First Peter, is really, I think, capturing the same thing that Mark is saying here, that you have this rejected stone offensive to them and um, it's this rock of offense to the people who can't believe it. Yes, right. So I think it's a nice parallel to me of, of use of that concept and that term of the cornerstone. So um, Summarize that those first few verses, you just have a picture of unbelief. The Nazarites have a dilemma on their hands, teaching and performing miracles. 
can't be from God, they conclude he can't be from God because of their unbelief. Yes, it is so ironic is a good word, um, but then also the judgment that comes on people who see that, what verse was it, Luke 10? The judgment that, will, I won't put there and find it so I can, but uh, in Luke and in Matthew 2, um, Jesus says to the people, you know, woe to you uh, who basically, I'm paraphrasing, see these miracles and don't believe. If the people from Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah had seen these, they would have believed long time ago. But woe to you because you see them and you don't believe. So it's a real sober judgment on those people that actually see the miracles right in front of them and they don't believe. And that's a judgment that's going to come on the people here in Nazareth. And it's actually one reason maybe he didn't do more miracles. Maybe he was being merciful so that they, at the time of judgment, they wouldn't be as judged, I guess, is one way to look at it. He may be merciful by just saying he knew they're not believers. There's no need for me to show any miracles to these people. Yes? Right, so the question is, how, how did you become a scribe or a Pharisee or a Sadducee or part of that leadership group? I don't know the exact answer of how they chose people, but I do know it was, a, um, it was an elitist club, and I think you, it was um, familial and cliquish. You know? So they, they sort of only let certain people in based on their upbringing and their status in the community. Et cetera. I don't think you could just say, I want to be a Pharisee and go to school and study it. You had to be... I believe, chosen and selected, and it was the elitist group. Anyone else can help me with that? I don't know the exact way that you would become. Of course, uh, right. Of course, right. Right. That's, that's right. had synagogues in every town, so I don't know the exact answer, but good question. I'll try to look into that. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, I think so. I think it speaks to the, the fullness of time. When it is time for him to have his ministry, that's when it started. My, my mind went through this a lot this weekend. I'm thinking um, it doesn't seem like he had a ministry up until he was 30. It doesn't seem like he was known, based on this, as someone who was walking around with his scrolls. I just, I could be wrong, but um, I just feel like it's God's timing, and when God wanted to start this ministry, that's when he did it. Because, you know, when he started his ministry... It was an explosion, and even earlier in this book, we've read where uh, he didn't do certain miracles because he knew it, of what it would bring, the practicality of all the people coming. So I just see God's timing is at work in his, in his life.
Right, and that tempers me to not go too far with conjecture, right? If it's not in here, we, we'd have to be careful with uh, drawing too many conclusions about what his early life was like. And two, I think he was perfect and sinless, right? So, perfect, sinless character that just bubbled forth when you looked at him, no doubt, right? He never cursed. He never got angry at someone in an unrighteous way. In any, and he wasn't self-righteous. And so he would not have fit in with the leaders. So if there was a club of them sitting around, and, you know, if you don't laugh at someone's joke, how... Who does he think he is? You know what I mean? So there, there no doubt was that. And, and so he probably was the odd guy because he just didn't partake in any kind of sinful jesting or anything. So I think we, we could conjecture all day. But I see him as an outcast even at a young age because he's perfect and he didn't fit in with I know it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it tempered their fear, too, when they looked around and said, he's not around, because they knew. So, you know, I'm sure that's part of why they weren't so worried about him. They knew he was God's child. Okay, time is upon us. I mean, just think if I can, I've got a few more things I want to mention. Oh. Uh, Let's do it. Okay. Great. Thank you. I'd like to finish up this section. Thanks, Randy. Um, so we're at verse 4, chapter 6. And this is a phrase where they basically, Jesus acknowledges a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. So this was a known proverbial saying back then, right? Today it might be familiarity breeds contempt. So apparently it was just known, you know, People of your own family don't respect you in your own neighborhood like they should, or as elsewhere. Prophets, for sure, aren't honored in their own hometown. And um, I think we can relate to that somewhat, right? Because if I went back to my childhood and people found out I'm teaching Sunday school in a church, and they would just, some of them would laugh and say, really? You? Right? So, so we change, and so your family knows all your weaknesses and all your problems, and uh, I just think we can understand sort of where that proverb comes from. We don't respect our family members, or we're not respected as much as we might be elsewhere. Probably many have similar. Uh-huh. I really got a lot of people. Yeah. 
Not probably. Yeah. But I could see. Felt like I was a judge. Um, so it applies to him. He, he's not honored in his hometown. And it's also an example to the disciples. Those closest to you guys may not support you. That's another thing he's teaching them here. Your family and your close friends and your fishermen buddies, they may not go along with what you're about to do. In fact, those closest might betray you. Think of Judas. Right? I mean, he was really in the inner circle and he actually betrayed him. Okay, and then this really interesting verse 5, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Any uh, opinions of what that means? He could do no miracle there. Any ideas? I have the answer, yes. <laughs> it implies with this reading that somehow he was sort of handcuffed, right? Like the spirit wasn't available to him to do a miracle because of their unbelief. But we've already proved through other examples, they didn't have to believe for them to be healed. They didn't need belief. He could heal whoever he wanted to, whenever he wanted to. He's God. So this can't mean that he's somehow hemmed in because of their lack of belief. Um, Matthew actually says it differently. Matthew 13, 58, it says, He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And it just opens a can of worms, and we've already talked about this a little bit, not a can of worms, it opens a discussion about miracles and what's the purpose of a miracle. And um, we know that one purpose is not to, miracles don't save necessarily. They, they don't save. Miracles fulfill prophecy. Okay, when John the Baptist goes and asks, you know, are you the one? He says, yes, tell him, I'm the one, basically, uh, tell him, um, I'm healing people. I'm the blind see, the dead are raised up. I, I am the miracle performer. It's been prophesied about me throughout the Old Testament. So it fulfills prophecy. Miracles demonstrate the power of God. Miracles attest to the truth that he's God so that people will believe in him. Not believe in the miracle itself, but to believe in Jesus. It testifies, I am God, I am powerful, I can do this, believe in what I say. They also demonstrate his mercy to those who he heals by faith. So they have faith he can heal them, he, he accepts their faith and heals them, and that is merciful to them, and they're encouraged. So that, that is one way to look at it, but they don't need, don't need faith to be healed by a miracle. Um... However, footnote, often, especially in Mark, the miracles are linked to the belief of the person coming. Not always, but often you do see that link. And I think I see that as a merciful, uh, God's mercy, healing people who want to be healed. And you look at all the people he healed, so many of them were pitiful. You know, the widow's son, the paralytic. And it's like his mercy just goes out to those people. That's how I see it. Um, and it's merciful to heal them through their faith. I will mention this word okay any any other thoughts before I move on about the um, miracles right. I think that's exactly it. It's exactly it. So he, when it says he could do no, it, it's like saying, and R.T. Franz, I think, is the guy who said this. He's like, his, his ethic or his moral, he just couldn't do it because he knew it wasn't going to be fruitful. 
He just could not do it. And then the other thought is because of the judgment issue. If he couldn't do the miracles, knowing they'd reject it and really incur more judgment on themselves. Except he did heal, heal a few. A few people, it seems, uh, came here um, and were healed. But I just want to clarify, we all believe it. It can't be that somehow some other force was there, Satan or something, hemming him in so he couldn't do a miracle. That, that cannot. Right. Right. One of, the, one of these, uh, one fellow's son is healed, and uh, he says, your faith has made you well. And he says, um, what's the phrase? I believe, help me in my unbelief. Basically, that's a real humble admission of, we know no matter how much faith we have, it's not enough. It's God who, who does, who shows mercy on us. Okay, and then we'll finish up verse 6. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. So it's not like he is surprised, but he is a little surprised. He, he marvels, basically, is the way that's translated. He's marveling at the level of unbelief that these people have. There's only two areas, two, two um, situations where Jesus marvels. So this is where there's only in the New Testament where it says he marvels or he wonders. This is one of them. Anybody know what the other one is? Where he marvels at something. Jesus marvels. Centurion. centurion. Very good, Ted. Yeah. The centurion, uh, he marvels at his faith. So it's the opposite. So here he marvels at their unbelief, <coughs> and the centurion brings, comes to him and asks for his son to be healed, and he marvels at his faith. And then this section ends with sort of anticlimactically. It's like he wonders at their unbelief, and then and he was going around the villages teaching. He just doesn't do miracles. He marvels. They, they have no faith, and then he just moves on to what he was called to do, which is really preach uh, and teach. Right. And we want them to have what we have mm -hmm. because it's so amazing. Yeah. And yet he says that. Right. I think it's a universal experience. For, uh, many of you people were saved outside of your family. Like I was saved in college. And I went back and you witness. I mean, almost everyone I've talked to said that is just the hardest thing. It, it is really, for some reason, the most difficult testimony to give is to your you know, mother, father, brothers, and sisters. Christ marveled. Right. Many accusations. Yeah, that's right. So the hesitation to come back. <coughs> Listen to me now. Yeah. Right. Right. The label hypocrite fits us, yeah. right? in some ways it can fit us but not not Christ very good so that's the end of this section next time we meet we'll pick up in verse 7 which like I said launches another section where he's up until now the disciples have been there with him now he's going to send them out uh, to minister on their own